Hey guys, this is Leah Wilson with House in Order Podcast, where we talk about parenting to the heart of your child and happy marriage, inspired by the teachings of Pastor Forrest and Mary Jane Ritchie. I'm an attorney, business owner, child welfare advocate, and understudy of my grandparents, Pastor Forrest and Mary Jane. No matter where you are in life, hoping to have kids or mama of four, looking forward to marriage or married for 40 years, we all have the same goal to thrive in our first ministry to our spouse and children. Hi, thanks for joining me for episode two of House in Order. Today we're going to talk about having a vision for parenting and how discipline starts with, wait for it, us. Us moms we start the trend with our own self-discipline, not with having disciplined children. So I'm excited to talk about another foundational concept today. It's awesome to have a reference point that allows each of us to work within parameters in our own way and with each child in his or her own way. So unpacking key foundational concepts goes a long way because it's just the boundaries that matter. And then all else follows when we feel rooted and grounded in our parenting vision. We take time to unpack vision for every other area of our life, such as your career, your marriage, your fitness goals, your finances. So let's set aside the next chunk of time to do just that for parenting. Our vision for parenting um, sets us up for a strong reference point that makes all other parenting decisions less complex. And I don't know about you, but I love simplicity. It makes me feel more whole and more connected. The vision for our role as a parent is really summed up in one word, redemptive. And that means that the singular focus is to lead your baby to Christ, not to teach the baby to conform or to conform to society's standards or cultural norms or to control behavior, but to be led to the ultimate guide to Christ through how we parent their heart. This is super revolutionary for me because with my personality, I would like nothing more than to control my child's every step. And keeping in mind that that's not the goal, that it's not the goal to control um, their behavior, helps me temper my responses. So therefore, I don't take the opportunity to react in a harsh tone or with an instant action that will create course correction or behavior. But I can pull back and instead of reacting, I can respond and respond in a way that allows me to get to the ultimate goal and that is to their character and to the heart of the issue and respond out of loving correction and not angry reactions. Loving correction does not mean that I never spank my child. No, it means that if I do choose to do that, it's not ever a surprise to the child and it's not hasty and it's never done while I am mad. So that is super pivotal in addressing the child's heart instead of the behavior. Susanna Wesley is a mother who did awesome things through parenting. She parented the leader of the revival movement that resulted in the birth of the Methodist Church. And in her own words, what she dedicated herself to was 
making her children fit for heaven in the service of God. And she understood in a super deep way that as mothers, we are building temples to be the abiding place for God. And we have the honor of teaching our children first before anyone else gets to teach them, before anyone else gets their influence, we get it. And that makes us as moms the greatest influence over our children. And something that grandmother always told me was, the days with my children cannot be frozen and thawed later when I have more time, I'm more established, or it's more convenient. And because I can't freeze and thaw my time with my children, a quote that keeps me grounded and in check is one by Richard Foster. It says, muchness, manyness, noise, crowds, and hurry are destroying our lives. The reason that's super key is because the only way that I can walk in vision successfully in parenting is by waiting before the Lord for guidance. That's right. You don't have to apologize for not having all the answers or for feeling in over your head when you're in the thicket of training your child because it's a necessity to get quiet before God and seek his help. We're not supposed to have all the answers. We're not supposed to be our own sufficiency or our child's sufficiency, but to realize that we have a real need to get quiet and to wait before God for his guidance. And it's so healing for us to know that and to know that we actually need the divine intervention and it's okay that we have to get quiet to know how to step forward. And that goes back to the whole thing of the muchness, manyness, noise, noise, crowds, and hurry that destroys our wholeness as a parent. So the ability to train your baby is dependent upon the absence of those things, the absence of muchness and of manyness and of noise and crowds and hurry. And each child is so different. So unfortunately and fortunately, we have endless resources at our fingertips with the Holy Spirit, but it also means that we have to wait before God for each child because each child is gonna require something very unique with how we deal with them, with what activities they should be involved in, with how much of something they should have, with what we should do for fun with them, to speak to them or to um, invigorate them. So every single child is different. And so we wait at God's feet for each one. And when preparing this topic on parenting with vision, I chose to cut out this quote. And I'm going to go ahead and share it. But originally I thought, you know what? This will create a feeling that I lack relevance and political correctness. And then I felt checked. And I thought age-old wisdom and age-old values can speak directly to the very things that I, as a mother, am trying to avoid the things which I'm trying to run from and that I need to hear. So even if it's for myself, I'm just going to go ahead and read this and maybe someone else needs to hear it and maybe someone else needs to ruminate over this for a minute. Okay, so Henry Dobson's father wrote to him and said, I have observed that the greatest delusion is to suppose that our children will be devout Christians simply because their parents have been or that any of them will enter into the Christian faith in any other way than through their parents' deep travail of prayer and faith. But this prayer demands time, time that cannot be given if it is all signed and conscripted and laid on the altar of career ambition. Failure for you at this point would make mere success in your occupation a very pale and washed out affair indeed. And one of the reasons that this like really speaks to me is because 
when I look at sometimes, I was just telling my sister the other day, like, okay, I have about 36 hours of childcare in my week um, in this season of my life, and I feel like maybe I should up it to 42. Like, maybe I just need more time to achieve what I want to achieve and to dig deeper into my passions and to make a difference. And then I pull back and I'm thinking, no, I've intentionally protected those other hours so that I'm the one training my children and I'm the one on the ground with them and pouring into them. And so just realizing that um, even if I succeed in a big way in my passions, but I've conscripted all the time away to those, what does it mean in the end? What does it mean if we've achieved those things when our children are the very people that we wanted to um, impact to begin with? And that's why we fight for what we fight for is because of them and their children and leaving a legacy in a world that is better to live in. So let's set them up for success first. And all that to say that this role of motherhood isn't a passive deal. Grandmother said, so I'm going to blame it on her because it's not easy to swallow, but she said it's essential for each child that we have to dedicate yourself to that job for 18 to 20 years full time. Not saying we cannot be full-time career women, not at all. However, the perspective and the perception and the harnessing the uh, willingness to dedicate ourselves for 18 to 20 years for each child as a full-time endeavor. And it requires so much devotion of time and energy and thought and consistent commitment to the task of bringing a child into the submission of authority, which will allow them by age four to six to exercise self-control. So I realize, as I say to you, the submission of authority, that it kind of grates against culture right now. And we're like, wait, that's outdated. That's Old Testament. Why are you talking about submission? But if you take a step back and realize that submission to authority and self-control are the same concept, but at different seasons, at different ages of the same human. So you start out with, I as a mother, I start with what I know is good or true. And I teach that to my young child of what is good or true. And the only way that I can teach them that is by almost, is by instilling within them the awareness of that through my authority. And then by the time that they're four or six, the desire is that they can see their own will and compare it to what is true and good and beautiful and right. And then know, oh, even though this is what I want, that's not what is needed or right, so I should not act that way. I should submit my own will to what is right. That's the essence of self-control, of self-discipline. And so if we teach them to submit to authority at a young age, then they have that muscle to exercise self-control when they are children and as they go into their adult life. So this exercise first appears at a very young age in the form of authority and us as parents instilling principles within them. And the earlier that you begin, the easier it is for the child and for you. So we desire that submissive spirit for their long-term character development, to have the muscles of self-control, and even though it costs time and intentionality and of simplifying our focus, that it's well worth it. I mean, there's really this critical time frame that you look at between 12 months and three years where we really just have to dial back and realize, you know what, I'm going to have a whole lot of interruptions. I'm going to have 20 minutes to go to the grocery, but yet I'm going to have to stop five times in the grocery store to redirect my child's focus and to correct their 
responses to what's going on around them, to correct their response to a stranger that spoke to them, to correct their response to me saying, no, they couldn't have something, that we can't just rush through life without pulling back and being willing to invest that time between those really pivotal years of 12 months and three years. So here's the catch. Self-discipline is instilled in our children through our own self-discipline as mothers. And that's often a major barrier to equipping our children is our lack of discipline in our own lives. So let's go through um, six ways. If you'll bear with me just to go through six simple ways that show up in parenting that we can commit to being disciplined in. And these just provide boundaries for us to observe ourselves as parents and to be like, ooh, I can do better at that, or we can create better boundaries for our children and set them up for success. So before we start with number one, I do wanna say one thing, that it doesn't matter if you're listening and your children are already 16 years old or if you're listening and you're looking forward to having children in the future, that this can apply to all those sweet babies because we have amazing brains as humans that God gifted us with and we have neuroplasticity. So if we have allowed bad habits to be formed, just because that's what happened in the past for whatever reason, that there's the ability to pave new pathways. So picture this, that you are um, bushwhacking through a forest and foraging a brand new path. Well, the more that you go over that path and over and over and over it, the more readily it can be accessed and the clearer it becomes. And those old pathways that we're not accessing anymore become grown over and less accessible. So that's the way our brains work is that we traverse pathways in them that can be easily accessed and new pathways can be birthed and the old ones can start to fade. So don't be discouraged if there are things that you're unhappy with, with how they've gone, because our sweet babies are adaptable to grow with us as we grow. So you don't have to throw in the towel. Okay, number one, be consistent with how you work with your child. However it is, however you choose, consistency is king. That's the one thing that holds true is it doesn't matter if you're a person that loves time out or that loves pulling back or whatever it is, but it's just that consistency is king. And ignoring misbehavior when you're busy or tired or in a hurry or really the big one is if you're just in a good mood, if you're just more playful that day so you ignore misbehaviors, it's confusing to the child because on the other side of that coin is just going to be the next day when... I choose to react in anger and severity and that just causes confusion and it often brings a very undesired response and ends up requiring more energy at the end of the day than if we would just choose to be consistent each time. Number two, resist the inclination to give in to pleas, whines, cries, or other angry reactions of your child. And honestly, this isn't just the pleas and whines and cries of your child. It's also giving in to the pressures from family or friends or the world because ultimately we're choosing what's best for our child for their long-term well-being. And so it's important that we are able to hold to those standards, which also requires us to step back and say, you know what, am I going to ask this of my child? Because I'm not going to ask it if I'm not willing to carry through on it. I'm not going to ask something just because I want to ask it. No, it needs to be that it's best for them or it's best for the people around them or I'm trying to teach them something key in their life because otherwise if we're just asking, asking, asking and not willing to carry through, then our authority becomes very diluted and they also develop really bad habits that 
they know, hey, if I just whine a little that mom will give in or if I just use a sad sad cry that, oh, I'll just get what I want. When in all actuality, in the first place, I was trying to hedge against excess or teach them to be grateful or to think of others first or develop a good habit. And um, keeping those things in mind will allow us to resist the inclination to give into those whines and those pleas. Number three, discipline with loving firmness instead of anger, harshness, or frustration. This, when I heard for the very first time that our children want nothing more than our approval, it really hit me hard because it's so true. At their most basic level of desire, that's what our kiddos want is our approval. And so I don't ever want to let disciplining in an unhealthy way damage my child's perception that they have my blessing and my favor and my approval. And so speaking to my own anger is super important for me because I don't know if any of you know the Enneagram or if you've ever heard of it, but with my triad, it's things manifest in my responses and the stimulus, it all manifests as anger. And so dialing that back and looking and to see, you know what, what is this communicating to my child and what are they actually needing to hear right now and what are they deserving of in this situation is something that can help us maintain a connection to our child's heart and maintain that connection, that relationship to really speak to them in a powerful way. Number four, allow your child to experience disappointment. That goes against every ounce of a mother's maternal instinct. We don't ever wanna see our babies disappointed, but if you step back and realize that when Isaiah is grown, he's gonna experience disappointments, right? And if he's never experienced disappointment in the safe space of our family, then what's that gonna look like when he experiences disappointment for the first time um, as an adult or as an adolescent in school? Then he's gonna be at the mercy of sudden change and difficulty and placing blame on others and instead of accepting things and moving on. And so the goal is to build that resilience in your child that they're able to know what disappointment feels like and then be able to accept it and move on instead of being wrecked by it. Number five, listen to your child and spend time with your child even when you're busy with your own interest. That's a big punch in the gut to me because I often explain away my shortness with my children as, you know what, I'm just a really focused person. <laughs> so if I'm focusing on one thing, that's what I'm focused on and I can't be interrupted. But guess what? If my child is in the same space as me, listening to them is super important, probably more important than anything else I'm doing. And even as I was writing notes for this episode, um, I was sitting in the backyard and studying one of my favorite topics, which is parenting a child's heart. And Samuel was sitting on my left foot, continually wanting a horsey ride. And it was totally worth it. The laughter and the playfulness and the connection with him was worth my fractured thoughts and not being able to work as quickly as I wanted to. So it's just worth the interruption. And listening costs time and it costs forgetting ourselves. And I know we've all heard this a million times, but if you're in a hurry today, then later in life when serious issues need our focus and input, the kiddos may not come to us. James 1.19 says, be swift to hear and slow to speak. Who better to apply this to and to practice this with than your children? Um, and remembering that what we're listening to come out of their mouth might seem trivial, but to them, it's the biggest deal in the world. 
their phase of life and their level of experience means that what's a big deal to them is dramatically different than what's a big deal to us. And I'm not telling you to dramatize or just be inflamed about things when your children come to you because that's actually, they'll see straight through that. Inflammation isn't something that they really want. They want genuine responses. But trivializing those things will damage the connection and their ability to come to us. So even if it's just a simple creation that they're wanting to share with us or they want us to talk about something that they're interested in or their first girlfriend has broken up with them, that if we respect that for what it's worth at their phase in their life, it will go a super long way. Um, So just creating that habit, that discipline within ourselves to be willing to stop and listen to them. The last one, you know, we all know that with much power comes great responsibility. So number six is do not provoke your child. And there are lots of ways that I as a mother can provoke my child, especially if I'm not aware that these are things that provoke a child. So it's good for us to just review what is it that provokes a child? What are the things that happen on a daily basis that could result in the child feeling targeted or embarrassed or less than? So take for instance, the child's imperfections. Making a joke out of those or making light of them is hurtful. Even if it's a joke, it's still hurtful to their little minds and their little hearts and so they will lash out or they will try to make up for it in a way in their little immature fashion. Being impatient also provokes a child and I see this all the time and I have to realize, you know what Leah, you are a really slow person sometimes. I process things slowly. I like to go at a pace that makes things feel not rushed and so it's really rich when I get impatient with Isaiah or Samuel doing things at a slow pace. And so not feeling, not making the child feel rushed or inadequate is super important because I can only imagine the emotion that impatience evokes in their little spirits if you could, if you conceptualize the way it makes you feel when you're rushed or hurried or feel like you're not enough. Um, And it also just allows the child to explore and to have more input and intake in life and to learn from all of that. I remember when I was uh, nannying in college, the mom told me, she's like, you know, it's really important that when the kids start to listen and learn to walk on their own, that we allow them to do that when we're taking a walk around the neighborhood or in the mall, that the two-year-old, the three-year-old, we're not just always in a hurry in their stroller, but that they're allowed to walk beside us and explore their surroundings and learn from their surroundings and have that exposure and input. One of the biggest ways that I try not to provoke my children and is something that my parents really did for me, which I will be forever grateful. Um, I remember my parents being very intentional to always pull me aside when I needed correction. It wasn't even alluded to in front of the crowd or in front of the other adults or the other children what was going on. I probably knew what was going on immediately when my mom said my name, but it wasn't necessarily true that anyone else did because even if the adults most likely knew, but if I needed correction, it was, oh, Leah, come with me. And then you're taken aside to deal with that in a private manner. So you're actually dealing with the core issue and not also helping the child recover from embarrassment. So it's so good to make it a goal to be disciplined enough to remove your child lovingly from the situation before ever addressing a shortcoming. So I'll repeat those six one more time, just in case someone missed one or wanted to take notes. Number one, be consistent with how you work with your child. Number two, 
resists the inclination to give in to pleas and whines and cries. Number three, discipline with loving firmness instead of anger. Number four, allow the child to experience disappointment. Number five, listen to your child. And number six, do not provoke your child. Remember, I'm not even near perfect and no, uh, no other mother is even close to perfect in these things, but they're worth my vigilance and yours to um, just realize that we can focus on these things because mothering requires massive amounts of grace on yourself and grace on your children and grace in your household and that every day is a learning experience and every morning is new. So one last thing, if these six principles resonated with you and if you want to adopt any of them, I would suggest taking the time to get on the same page with your spouse because deciding things for yourself and then not being on the same page in your household can create a lot of frustration because I know that my home is a lot more peaceful if we have the time to say, hey, this is what I'm noticing in Isaiah or Samuel and these are the habits that we need to foster and these are the things we need to still in them. And so it's so much easier to act as a united front when we know exactly the direction that we're going together. So I hope that you take at least a little morsel out of our time together and I will see you in a few weeks. Thank you for joining me for House in Order. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating and press share to Facebook and Twitter. Tag someone you know who wants to grow as a mama or wife. Have a great day. I'll see you next time.